Welcome to the Vehicle Network Podcast, a networking platform connecting those with an interest in automotive investigations. Hello and welcome to the Vehicle Network Podcast with me, your host, Noel Loudon. The Vehicle Network is a platform for people with a passion for automotive investigations to connect. Never has there been a time when we are connected as well as we are at the moment globally and never has there been a time when the population is as high as it is. So we're trying to bring those people together um, in order to provide a platform for them to share information and to also flush that information out globally so that you can um, take some resources away for you to help you in your automotive investigations. And in this inaugural episode, um, we have a special guest and that is James Wales from Audi. How are you doing, James? All Hello, right? I'm, I'm very well, thank you, Noel. Good. Hello to everyone. Yep, it would uh, be remiss of me not to invite James onto this um, first episode, really, because he has got a uh, uh, an in-depth background on current vehicle technologies, and we have worked with him um, over the last five years since um, we've started working privately in this particular area and assisting um, investigations involving a modern vehicle. And he has certainly provided us with um, a great deal of um, expertise in overcoming some difficulties so we thought we would um, introduce him to the vehicle network and talk about some of the vehicle technologies that are on a, a modern motor vehicle from uh, a master technician's perspective and to give people an insight into how those systems are working looking at some of um, the ADAS systems and then a little bit about um, infotainment so if you want to give a quick introduction James as to your background and uh, the work that you've done up to press yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm James Wales, um, currently a Master Technician for Audi um, and also a high voltage expert. Um, been doing, uh, well, I've been working with Audi for about 14 years now. Um, seven of those as a Master Tech. Prior to that, um, Senior Technician for Citroen and a bit of time at BMW as well. Um, yeah, so quite a varied sort of look at different European cars and the way that um, different European manufacturers go about doing things. Yeah. Um, and in your current role, you also devise training for technicians as well, Audi, is that right? Do, yeah, yeah. So I, I help out with um, cascading information out towards uh, the wider sort of um, network and also the guys in our dealership. I do put quite a bit of training together just to help them um, understand some of the technologies that we're dealing with and things sort of moving as fast as they are. They find it quite hard to keep up. Sometimes I have to sort of simplify things a little bit and help disseminate the information. Yeah, and that's what we look for you to do in this podcast as well. I'm sure yeah. there are some listeners that um, will um, be working at different paces, so uh, it's important yeah, just to sure. um, you know try and keep that um, sort of technical information as simple as possible because it, it can get uh, it can get rather technical in some of the stuff that we uh, that we have to deal with and that we have to see. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess I can't. Um, I can't not mention Frankie, the uh, vehicle system forensics rig that you um, put together for us to aid learning. You um, just gives a bit of uh, an insight into how that came about and what the rig consists of. Yeah, of course. Um, so the rig 
consists of um, what we call an MIB2 unit. Um, MIB being the sort of modular um, infotainment uh, base that uh, the Volkswagen Group use now and have been using for quite a while. Um, so this is what the second generation of the MIB unit that we took from a 2004, uh, 2018 Audi S4 um, and we, we sort of use that um, along with various other components from that car to get it running as a sort of part of the vehicle network outside the vehicle so we um, take that to different training events and take it to um, places where they have sort of hacking conferences and things to try and get people to uh, penetration test the systems. Uh, and yes, it's it's a great tool, isn't it? We've we've had a bit of fun with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, a great learning aid, you know, for uh, for us and for those people that we work with here in the UK, just to impress upon them the complexities of that particular rig in its, in its stripped down basic form um, outside of the vehicle and you know, let's not forget, it, it's not the whole vehicle in its entirety. It's only a small portion of the vehicle. And, and even that, it's um, it's quite impactful to see that sort of out on a desk, if you like, as a, as a car in a number of, um, you know, different flight cases that, that get put together. But yeah. also for us and, and the community of, of car hacking that you talk about there, um, is it's a safe place for people to experiment because... Um, we do know that um, working on your own vehicle is not necessarily the uh, the safest and, uh, and best thing to do. So it's um, yeah. it's a useful it's a useful resource um, for sure, and we try to make that available to the community as much as we can do, um, for yeah. them to see it and to also to engage with it if they if they so wish. Obviously, the the pandemic has put a temporary halt to that, but we uh, <clears throat> we're hopeful to get that up and running again as soon as possible. Yeah, it was a great sort of learning curve uh, um, for me as well, really. I mean, trying to make something work outside the vehicle and trying to figure out how many modules and things were needed to get things running. Um, we had some uh, some issues that we had to sort of work, find workarounds to. Uh, but it's yeah, it's, it's now it's running. It's it's a good sort of place that we we sort of plan on maybe building on it, don't we? at some point yeah for, yeah for sure certainly from our perspective it's something that's very much in its infancy and uh, yeah. you know can be taken forward um i guess just to finish on on frankie really that as you said came from a 2018 audi s4 which at the time that it was built was you know not long after that vehicle you know had been um sort of brought out onto the uk roads because it was uh it was a you know relatively new vehicle at that time Looking yeah. at that technology now that's on that rig versus what you see on some of the stuff now, sort of three years on, is there a significant difference in, in how those um, systems function? There is. There is a, a, a very significant difference already. Um, so on Frankie, we, the MIB2 unit um, came out um, sort of, well, maybe Q7 TT, so 2016 sort of time, and bearing in mind that the that shape A4 S4 came out in 2016, but the we didn't have uh, the full sort of um, connections that 
Frankie had at the time, they came at a later date. So they came on like 2018 model year, where we started to have extra SIM cards built into different units um, to allow more connectivity and the card to do more things like be controlled by uh, the customer's uh, app on the phone and things like that. And now we've seen it where they've actually scaled it all back and instead of having sort of multiple SIM cards in the car, they're going back to just having one SIM card now, but using that for many different things. So uh, they've actually introduced a lot more uh, new networks and new protocols on the car that these things communicate on, as well as everything going sort of more or less full touchscreen now. Uh, the processing power's got up a lot. But yeah, from from sort of a technical perspective, the, the networks that these things run on have completely changed again just in the past few years. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of an important message to get across, you know, to people in the sense that how quickly this technology is changing at the moment, you know, we're, yeah, we're still yeah. uh, very much going through a great transitional period in the automotive industry. And, and as much as we think we've got a relatively new rig because it came out of a new car, the time it took to build that and put that together, the manufacturers are working in the background on, you know, the next platform that, that's to come. And yeah. for others in the investigation, uh, you know, team, it's hard to keep pace. And that's just one manufacturer. And yes. I know they share different, you know, I know the technology is underneath them and the principles can be the same. But, um, you know, you multiply that by the number of manufacturers and it's very, it's very difficult to get on top of. But what I can say about that platform is it is there and it is going to be there for some time because those vehicles are going to remain on, you know, on, on the roads in the UK and Europe and beyond, you know, for, for, for a good number of years, um, potentially, whereby, you know, it won't be the, it, just because the new platforms out and new technologies are out. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean to say that you're going to not encounter that platform of, of networks and, and uh, modules. Yeah. Uh, in, that's in investigations right. going forward. So I do yeah. think it's got some longevity. I mean, for that platform, when, when we, put Frankie together I'm just sort of trying to think in my head that must have been on um, maybe 10 of our models so maybe more um, and it's only on two sorry three it's on three now and that's yeah. it everything else has moved on to MIB three so yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and most of that happened on the 21 model year so it just comes in a vast wave and it just sort of it's not something that happens so much gradually it just from one model year to the next, you can just get a complete change of technology. And, and just looking at the car um, isn't really enough. You know, visually, it may look identical to the previous technology. Um, yeah. But actually, how it works can be completely different. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, then. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, advanced driver assistance systems, purely because I'm from a crash investigation background, and I find it fascinating now that we've got all these technologies that, you know, are coming onto vehicles to try and assist, um, you know, reducing the number of casualties and, you know, safety, as much as the um, systems can provide convenience to a degree, um, certainly in the longer term, when perhaps we get a full autonomous um, situation, then that would increase convenience uh, to you know to the driver but yeah. at the moment it's it's technology that is starting to help reduce the number of serious collisions that perhaps um, happen on the roads globally and 
Um, you know, it's a passionate topic of mine, the amount of people that are, are seriously injured or killed in road traffic collisions globally um, is quite a high number. So you were able to talk to us a little bit about the technologies that are on the platforms that you're working with at the moment as to, you know, how those um, technologies work and just give us a few examples of of how that's working on a modern vehicle. Um, I've been and visited, um, you know, Audi's technology site today, and there's no less than 35 different driver assistance systems mentioned on on the on the website, and that's from 2017. So, you know, if I was still investigating serious collisions as a police officer interviewing people, for example, that had, you know killed somebody that's driving one of these vehicles, I'd be thinking, well. There's potentially 35 driver assistance systems on here, which ones were, you know, in play and which were on these vehicles and how may they have, have played a part in, in the collision or, or helped to try and reduce them. Um, I guess out of those 35 systems, there, there won't be 35 different modules that, you know, that are working to do. That would be a combination. So if you can just give us an overview yeah. of how yeah, those sure. systems are working, that would be appreciated. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so, I mean, advanced driver assistance, um by advanced, uh, I, mean, I mean, driver assistance we've had for a long time uh, is is age-old sort of cruise control and things like that. Uh, by by ADAS and advanced driver assistance, we we mean the car's got a, an awareness of its environment, so it's it's monitoring what's going on around it and it's using that information to make decisions and to and to assist the driver. So that's that's where the advanced thing comes from. Um, and we've had that since. Ooh, Sort of early, early noughties, really. Um, certainly, Mercedes were always hot on it, and, and so so the other German manufacturers, including Audi. Um, and that kind of started with um, adaptive cruise control, so using radars fitted in the front bumper of the vehicle to look at what the car in front's doing and then to, to work out the proximity of the vehicle in front and its relative speed. And to, and to maintain safe distances uh, accordingly. So from that point, we've we'd got the front radar on the vehicle. Um, and we could then use that to have like a brake assist. So if that, if that gap starts to close up too quick, then it'd alert the driver. And in some cases, and later on vehicles, it would actually start to intervene and start to brake if the driver didn't take any um, pay attention to the warnings and didn't start braking themselves. And things got a little bit more advanced and the car would actually start to tension up the seatbelts and roll up the windows if um, if it sensed that it was about to have an impact. It would also start to flash a hazard lights at a high speed, a higher frequency than you generally get with a hazard light just to alert other drivers. Um, and things have just got more and more advanced. So from using that front radar, we've sort of gone to that point where we've, we've got what Audi call pre-sense. Uh, other manufacturers have different names for it, but it, essentially it's the vehicle preparing itself for a, a crash scenario. And then we, from that, uh, using that front radar, we then fit a front camera. Um, you generally find those at the top of the windscreen. Some, some vehicles have more than one. Uh, depending what kind of technology they're using on the camera. And that can start to see things like traffic lights, uh, road signs. You can see 
speed limit signs and project those onto the dashboard. And it can also help with the radar to see what the intentions of the car in front actually are. So, for example, if you were sat behind a car in the um, inside lane and you had the adaptive cruise control on, and then the car in front started to um, indicate off to come off the slip road and it started to brake a little bit and the gap reduced. Well, the car, your car, wouldn't necessarily brake because it knows that that car's intentions are to come off at that slip road. It can see its indicator going. Okay. Um, so things got progressively more and more advanced. And obviously, the software that runs these systems is the thing that advanced the most. The sensors that we're, we're using have, have come on a little bit. They're, they can see a greater um, distance. Um, they can start to see a wider field than the, the early ones, as well as the cost of them coming down. Because that's a big, big push with. That's what drives um, technology and automotive more than anything is, is the cost and the legislation as well. So, yes, that's where, that's where uh, ADAS started, really. Um, and then we've gone to a point where they've started fitting... Uh, radars in the corners of the bumper so they started with the corners of the back bumper so you get the blind spot monitoring that you often see uh, it's particularly noticeable on sort of the volvos and things like that where you'll be see one at the side of you and it's got a little orange dot in its wind mirror yeah, um, yeah. so that's sort of the blind spot assistance um and that'll utilize a like say radar in the back corners of the bumpers but again, that can be utilized uh, not only for the blind spot warning, but they can see if a car's about to um, come rear-end your car without, if it's you know approaching too fast, and will signal the hazard lights and start to roll the windows up, pre-tension seatbelts, things like that. The car's got that awareness of what's going on behind it as well now. Yeah, which is obviously a, a huge, um, you know, plus for safety in the sense that the vehicle can prepare itself for deployment of safety restraint systems from that technology, yeah. um, rather than obviously having to wait for the impact on, um, you know, a sensor within the airbag control module for it to uh, for it to deploy. Yeah, it's, it's proactive as opposed to reactive. You might yeah. say it's um, it's it'll also pre-fill the brakes and things like that. Um, but it's come on a long way from that now. I mean, this this is, I'm going right back to the beginning and talking about relatively old technology now. We've also got the radars in the front bumper. Um, so it's looking at if you're about to sort of pull out of a junction and you've not seen an oncoming car. So it'll, and the laws that have been passed allow the car to intervene more these days so the car can break harder. Yeah than they used to do. It can actually give 100% braking force as opposed to sort of 30% like they used to. Um, and it can sort of give you a warning jolts and and various other things, really. We're getting more and more to the point of the autonomous driving and they're just gradually trickling this, this sort of stuff in where the car's got more control yeah. and can intervene more. Yeah. 
So I met somebody that's my age um, who's driven a car, who can remember starting a car, you know, a car with a, with a pulling a clutch out. Uh, sorry, a choke out. Um, yeah. You've got the, you know, the problem of the, the population of trying to sort of trust this technology versus losing that control, if you like, that you've always had of a vehicle. And depending upon your age and your driving experience, then that can feel a little bit, um, you know, unusual. Um, from a driving perspective, so I guess the manufacturers have just got to sort of slowly increment these these sorts of changes and, and gain people's trust in respect to the technologies as to as to how they're uh, how they're working and, and and how they deploy. Yeah, um, and I think it's important to know the limits of the technology as well for the driver to know the limits uh, of what it's capable of. Um, you know, it, it's it's fantastic that we've got. Um, these systems in place now and they have saved a lot of lives no doubt and saved a lot of insurance costs as well but at the same time you do get these false deployments where the vehicle thinks it's seen something and it hasn't necessarily or what it has seen isn't necessarily a hazard yeah uh, you know they're still not as clever as we are um the more alert than people are so even you know if you if you're getting drowsy um Obviously, shouldn't be driving, but people do drive tired, and the computers are their awareness doesn't drop off the longer they drive, like ours does. That's, but yeah, at the same time, they can process the information to the same depth that we can. Yeah, you make a good couple of points there. One, the driver understanding the limitations of the technology. And I know there's a lot of campaigns going on at the minute around classing autopilot as a, you know, that we shouldn't be calling it autopilot because it's it's giving the wrong impression to drivers to think that they can just let go of the vehicle and it'll do everything for them. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah I, I, I've I've thought that many times lately when I've been driving around around advanced driver assistance systems when you maybe have that situation between two drivers where these unwritten rules sort of apply where a vehicle will be waiting to get out in busy traffic um, yeah. for the side junction and the driver sort of asking the question by by edging out and depending on the this kind of driver you are, some people will acknowledge that because they've been in that situation before. And yes. it's the machines having to learn those things that we do as drivers that sort of, you know, shall we say, unwritten rules that we've we've learned as humans um, driving, for them to be able to, um, you know, they won't be able to recognise that that's what the vehicle's trying to do in that circumstance. It'll be recognising as hazard and then slamming the brakes on this as such, which would create the same effect, but that might not be necessarily as comfortable as just being able to slow the vehicle down. Yeah, yeah, and I mean there are instances where the the cars are potentially causing a problem as well, where particularly the lane assist, so um, what we call the lane assist, so that's where the camera's looking at the white lines on the road and trying to keep you centralised in there. Um, so all, all vehicles, um, since a couple of years ago, if they want to pass the um, Euro NCAP five, and get a five-star rating as a, as a newly sort of tested vehicle, they've had to have the um, sort of, autonomous braking and also the lane assist so you've got the autonomous braking that will um emergency in an emergency it'll break for you uh, within the system's limits and also the lane assist so that's keeping you within the white lines 
stop you drifting out and it'll just pull you back in again. Um, but there are, like I was saying, there are limitations and these systems are quite often they'll try to pull you back in line when you're actually just driving around a parked car or trying to overtake a cyclist, something yeah. like that. The system's trying to pull you. It sees that you've gone over that central white line. It's trying to pull you back again. Yeah. And in some cases, you know, trying to pull you into a parked car or a cyclist. So yeah. that's where the driver just has to be used to, to how their car drives and, and like I said, the limits... Yeah. The, of the system really yeah um, i think yes. um yeah i think if if i interpret things correctly the way that um you know certainly in the uk that the level of autonomy will increase is obviously on the motorways where a lot of this technology is is designed for um, at the moment and the example you give there of, of, of you know the lane assist working really yeah. well on a motorway is not really going to work really well on a you know on a country lane or exactly. in a busy town from that point of view the autonomy yeah. will come on the on the on, you know, on the motorway networks um, of our roads. I'm sure in the first instance, rather than elsewhere. Yeah. And once we get comfortable with it there, then um, after that, it will probably advance to the points where it, it starts to understand it better in the towns and cities with the data that's collated by these systems in testing and what have you. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. Well, it's all machine learning, really, and what's getting sent back to the uh, manufacturers. Um, over the air to, to help yeah. bring these systems on. And I thought this was an interesting one, um, night vision assist. And we just had a chat before we started this podcast and you say that that technology has been there for quite some time, but um, certainly from an investigator of serious collisions before at night time, and we look at distances that people could see in the, you know, in advance of the vehicle from the um, headlights yeah. Just tell us a little bit about that feature of, 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 of night vision assist and, and how that works because it could feature in some investigations for um, collision investigators for sure. Yeah, it's quite an interesting one actually. Um, when we were um, when we were actually sort of writing the, uh, some of the theory for our tests as master techs um, Back years ago when I did that, one of the topics that I was tasked with researching was night vision assistance. So I did quite a bit on different manufacturers and the different ways that they implement the system. Uh, there's two variations really. There's um, a thermal imaging camera based system. Um, and then there's also um, one that will project ultraviolet, uh, sorry, infrared light from say the headlights. They'll have actual infrared projectors in them and they'll work a bit like you get with the uh, the night mode on CCTV systems um, so it'll be an infrared camera uh, there's two different those two different versions the ones that we use uh, uh, with an Audi group um, are the thermal imaging cameras and they'll give a black and white um, picture in the driver's dashboard sort of computer of the driver's dashboard and you'll be able to pick out sort of obviously hotter objects, so animals, people, um, things like that. And then later on, um, I think this source, this technology came out in 2012, uh, sorry, 2010. And then in 2014, they brought out the matrix headlights. Um, so the headlights that'll actually, you don't have to have like a dip beam or a high beam. The, the high beam will block out 
um, sections where it sees oncoming cars or it sees cars in front of you. Um, so you can actually leave the, the high beam on all the time and it'll regulate itself. And they started implementing that system and merging it with the night vision. So if it saw a pedestrian at the side of the road, it would blink a targeted light at that pedestrian right. to alert both the pedestrian and the driver as well. Um, so quite quite an interesting system, really, and quite an interesting implementation of it. And yeah, because if um, I was um, naive or unaware of that particular system, um, and a driver was, you know, telling me that, you know, my headlights were pointing in one direction and then all of a sudden lit up, you know, pedestrian at the side of the road. Um, yeah. I might be thinking there's a fault potentially with the vehicle or with the headlights. Um, or if witnesses were describing that sort of activity, we might be thinking, mm, not sure this witness has got that right. How can the headlights be pointing in sort of, you know, those those different directions? So I think it's a really interesting one and certainly something for forensic inclusion investigators to consider when they are doing sort of reconstructions around that, that potentially the vehicle could see beyond what the headlights um, could light up in front of them. Yeah. Um, there's a potential to check that as regards um, whether or not that's, you know, been working or been a factor. Um, so <clears throat> really interesting one that, you know, again, it's just testament to how many systems that are on um, the modern vehicle and um, probably been around for quite some time with regards to, um, you know, playing a part in, in some types of investigations. Um, all these different systems then, how, how are they brought together and how are they um, controlled as regards um, taking all this information and processing it and then making other things happen as a result of, of what it sees. If you can uh, shed us any light yeah. on some of the systems that facilitate that communication, that'd be useful. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so um, going back to sort of where, where we uh, we've started really um, just to touch on that. Uh, traditionally the um, different systems have had their own control units. Um, so the radars, um, so radars, I'm, I'm Talking now about cars, I've got multiple radars. Some some vehicles have more than one uh, on the front, but they'll have the, an integrated control unit, um, and as does the camera, and all that sort of sends information on the networks to each other, um, and then things like the anti-lock brake system get sent requests to to do what they need to do based on that information, and and the the decisions are made by the control units and the radars themselves. Um, but in more recent years, with um, as this sort of information and the the amount of systems on there has uh, increased, we've gone to a, a unit that we call the ZFAS uh, unit, which is essentially a driver assistance unit, um, which is scalable to whatever the car's got on there. So it's got a heck of a lot of processing power. Um, and that, that unit will live somewhere in the center of the car, um, quite low down, a little bit like an airbag control unit does. Okay. And that'll take all the different signals um, on different networks from, uh, say, the cameras, radars, uh, different items on the vehicle, sending information to there as well. And that will be, that's the unit that does all the processing and decision making now. Uh, it's much more rapid and it's it's much more capable 
than things that we've had in the past. Yeah. Uh, we can use higher resolution cameras, things like that. We can we can use the sort of the connected side so we can it can communicate with things outside the vehicle as well. Okay. Uh, so it's it's a it's a lot more sort of yeah, it's a lot more information. And this is all moving towards the um self-driving sort of era that we we keep mentioning yeah this is this is the idea with that it's going to be something i'd imagine something a little bit like we see with the mib systems um where it's become scalable that's that's what they're now using that's gets scaled to each model and the technology improves and they just sort of keep incrementally improving it over the years and that sort of unit then that would be on on every new model of Audi at the minute, depending on. on no, the... we have, we have that unit on the latest what we call the Audi platform models. So, um, this came out on the A8 in twenty, let's say twenty eighteen, twenty eighteen Audi A8, and that's been fitted on subsequent models since so uh, since then the. A7 came out and the A6 Q8. Um, so it, it's fitted on those models. Um, yeah. What we call the group cars, the, the smaller vehicles that are based on the, um, the same platform as the Golfs, the, the Volkswagens, um, yeah. Skodas, things like that, they still use the um, same system where the radars and the cameras have their own control when it's built in yeah. and communicate on the network individually yeah but yeah the the idea was basically that the when the a8 came out it had what they call level three autonomy or, yeah. or it was capable of level three autonomy um, and one of the things that it was able to do was driving and out of the out of parking spaces uh, using the customer's phone app and also control itself where the law permitted on motorways up to sort of 40 kilometers an hour and things like that. Yeah. So that's where we start to see this huge processing power requirement. And um, yeah, it's just obviously, like I say, been scaled to, to different models since. And I'm sure we'll see the processing power in that unit probably increase exponentially over the next few years, a bit like computing power in every yeah. everyday consumer yeah. electronics has. Yeah. So as somebody that's interested in obtaining vehicle data, do you think that kind of module could potentially store what the vehicle was doing in the lead up to a crash, similar to what an airbag control module does? And, yes. You know, yeah. Information that could be useful to crash investigation in time to come? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, the manufacturers have got, um, it's in their interest to cover the back in an event like that. So as we as we're moving towards this autonomous sort of time with vehicles, um, it's going to be a matter of proving fault um, from the manufacturer's point of view as well. They want to prove that their car wasn't at fault, yeah. just as much as the driver wants to prove that they're not at fault. Yeah. So you get the readability um, with those units. You get to see what uh, what's happening. Um, in the moments leading up to a crash, just like you would uh, with a CDR system, yeah, uh, a compatible 
sort of SRS unit. Yeah. Um, you get to see this as well. You've got the same sort of readability and the same memory that you would get um, in those scenarios. So it can not only see actual crashes and, and impacts, it can also see um, near misses and things like yeah. that. And it will it will give it will write um, write to its memory when it sees things like near misses. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. So it's good to be able to see what systems a driver was using at the time, uh, as well as all those sort of the things that you normally get with the CDR. This is this is like making the like picture a little bit richer. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's making the picture more rich by allowing allowing you to see what what systems the driver was using at the time, whether whether relying on the um, adaptive cruise control or the yeah. assistance or yeah it's uh, sort of traffic jammer system things yeah. like that yeah i guess that's kind of creeping in with cdr at the minute in the sense that we you know we're getting on certainly some of the later models um you know brake service brake whether or not it was driver or i've yet to see where it does say vehicle but you know we we're getting driving brackets as regards you know who's who's responsible for that brake action um in the cdr and i guess you know, moving that forward into that ZFast unit, it's potentially going to have those sorts of elements as well. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. To protect, um, you know, to protect the brand um, and the technologies really as to, you know, how, how it has been working. And, you know, let's not forget, this This is already here now with regards to some investigations that are going on globally in respect of the, um, you know, Teslas that have been involved in fatalities and the uh, investigations are already up and running, shall we say, but they are going to become more mainstream in, um, in other parts of the world that, that we've seen them already and going to be more commonplace, I guess. Um, certainly in my recent experience, drivers making allegations that the vehicle should have done this and it should have done that and how do we get to the bottom of that and manufacturers, um, rightly so, are going to have to um, you know, make sure that there is some way of checking that and that it's a, you know, a robust method for us to be able to... Um, you know, examine that because of the nature of the incidents that are likely to occur, or, or should I say, will occur. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. the point to make there is what we, we said earlier as well about um, the driver needing to know their car because as this technology moves on as quick as it will do, yeah. um, there will be differences between one model and another and, and, and even an identical car built one year, um, or a seemingly identical car built one year to one built, couple of years later and if someone's going from a car that they've been used to all that technology and relying on this sort of autonomy stepping back into a car that hasn't and then expecting yeah. the car to do things that it's not capable of you know that could as yeah, well that's, be that's, yeah. that's a real good point you make actually yeah because yeah, we're normally thinking about incremental in, in the way that it's going to help us out but yeah we could potentially have a driver that's had a you know, one of the latest vehicles and then for whatever reason has stepped back into, you know, something with less functionality and I yeah. could see, you know, I could see that as a as a response in an interview at some point from a driver that would expect something to happen and, and it's not been there. And I think, you, you you know, it's not the first time you've mentioned it and it's right to emphasise it that the driver has to take some responsibility, um, you know, in this, in this time. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, things that can affect this and and that's from a repair and um fault perspective um 
there isn't a lot of new technology. Technology is susceptible to, you know, to faults or to damage. And um, the, the sort of point I try to make in some of the presentations when I deal with um, presenting to law enforcement and people that are doing crash investigation is, um, you know, the recalibration of these, um, you know, sensors, if the vehicle has been involved in the bump or it's been damaged, um, you know, vandalism, for example, it's not cheap to do these repairs. It's not cheap to recalibrate the, you know, the vehicle to the standard that it should be. But um, I know it's a, it's a real big message from people in your position and certainly the manufacturer. Can you just yeah. give a bit of an insight as to um, the implications of not having that right and why people should check a vehicle's history when they're investigating it? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Yeah, it, like you say, it is something that I sort of try to hammer home um, when, we're, when we're out there doing these uh, training events. Um, and unfortunately, we're normally at that point in a training event where we're getting towards the end and people are probably not as alert as they were at the beginning, but it is one of the most important things. Um, so things um, that what's really important with all these sensors is that they're looking in the direction that they were designed to be looking in. So when we talk about the cameras and the radars and things, they're all attached to something that is removable. And, and so a camera's attached to a windscreen, people break windscreens and they get new ones fitted. In that kind of scenario, the camera has to be calibrated. If, you, if your front bumper's removed and the, the radars sort of have to come off with it, then when it goes back on, they have to be calibrated. So all these little things that, you know, the, the panels on the outside of the car, the ones that are most likely to get damaged, and this is where all this, these expensive sensors actually are. If they're not calibrated um, in the way that they should be, then for example, that camera might think that it's actually looking at the road straight ahead, but it might be looking slightly off to the left. So you're flying down the outside lane of the motorway, and the camera's looking slightly to the left, so it's looking at what the car in the middle lane's doing. And all of a sudden it sees you're fast approaching this car, and it starts to intervene with the brakes, or the lane assist wants to push you out into the central reservation because it thinks that you're way out of line yeah. where you should be. These are all scenarios that might sound like quite exaggerated, but they are real scenarios that could happen. Yeah. Um, there are sort of parameters built into the software of these systems that if they're too far out, then they should put a message on the dash. Yeah. They should yeah. sort of limit what the capabilities are. But of course, there's that window discrepancy where they really don't know if how far things are out. Yeah, of course. Um, so it is actually really, really important that, yeah, like you said, these things are, are sort of the way they, they should be. And the, the camera and the windscreen is the, probably the biggest problem for us because um, auto glass companies, um, I'm probably using an actual trade name there, but I don't, generally I'm not picking up on them, but glass repair companies, uh, in general, have been so used to be able to just fit windscreens and then get on the way again. Two hours later, your car's good to drive. But now we've got to the scenario where your car's probably going to go to go to the dealership or to a, a capable uh, garage yeah. for these things calibrating. 
for That's you right. should be, you know, relying on it as your everyday car again. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a big job. Also, it's it's a bit of a um, a nightmare for body shops as well because they're having to send a lot of their vehicles out after the body work's done for these systems recalibrating. Yeah. And it's it can be the case that as we were saying, it's um, it's not always obvious that these things are actually there. No. Um, even to us now, we're, you know, uh, we've been working with these systems for years and years, and you can get the systems where radars are hidden behind the bumper. You, you don't actually know that they're there until you start looking at the vehicle spec sheets and seeing what it has and hasn't got. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly going to play a part in law enforcement's investigations. Yeah, I think systems aren't working right. Yeah, I think it's a, a really, um, you know, it's a real big point that needs emphasising because, you know, that example you can you give there of a car maybe pushing somebody into the, you know, towards a central reservation. You know, I've been in many interviews with drivers that have said, oh, cruise control stuck on, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, cruise control, don't stick on. But, you know, yeah. I could have a um, driver that's saying the car were pushing me into the into the hard shoulder. Is that a, a steering issue? And do I need to look at, you know, whether or not the steering's damaged or is it, you know, a radar that's, or a camera that's not being calibrated properly following a minor bump three weeks ago and they've not had the repair done properly on, on the vehicle and it could be a legitimate um, claim from the driver that the vehicle was doing that and some investigators would probably... Um, not give too much emphasis or belief on that on that account. I think no, you were drifting asleep, and that's why you've drifted off, you know, to the right hand side. So it's it's something that um, you know I find a real interest, and investigators should be aware of. I think when they are looking at these vehicles um, following a serious collision, that um, they're trying to get the antecedents, I guess, of the vehicle in in respect of its you know history as to whether it's been involved in a, coll a collision before and whether or not those collaborations have, have taken place. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and well, as I was saying with the Matrix headlights as well, that they're another item that needs calibrating. So um, they they utilise a camera. So if the camera's not pointing straight ahead and looking straight ahead, then and the Matrix lights aren't set up right, so the car's you know, had to have some headlights replaced. Now, there's... There's not that many places can sort of do this kind of work. The, the equipment's really expensive. So, yeah. what's the likelihood that when the cars have this work done, um, it has been calibrated properly? Yeah. So, how can you guarantee that that car's not going to be blinding oncoming traffic because its cam its headlights and the cameras haven't been set up right? Things yeah. again causing you know, these sorts of scenarios. So tell me this then: When a vehicle is put on, you know, put on the road from production, when it's got all these things on, is there anything in place to say they've got to go and have them recalibrated at any point? Like when the vehicle's due an MOT, does it form part parcel of that examination, or the no, requirement to, to go back in and, and have any calibration? No, no, it doesn't. No, it's it's all based on the on the work that's been done on the car and um, and what systems have been sort of touched uh, yeah. to do to do jobs. Uh, and from a um, technician's point of view, how difficult would it be to check a vehicle as part of, say, an MOT um, for making sure that the things were calibrated correctly? Would that have huge implications for the MOT testing? Yeah. Center? 
Yeah, it would, yeah. Um, so depending what the vehicle has fitted, um, it can be up to a sort of six-and-a-half-hour job Okay. To, to sort of do all these calibrations and things. Yeah. 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 One of the important things that we have to check uh, with many of them, uh, some of the, the sensors that are looking externally, so the radars and the cameras, we need to make sure that the wheel alignment of the car is right first. Yeah. Because if the car's sort of got the uh, alignment on the back end out, so the car's actually crabbing down the road slightly, but the back end's not in line with the front end, if you like. Yeah. Then even if you set these cameras and radars to be looking straight down in front of the car, straight down the centre line, the car might not be driving on its centre line because the, the back axle might be crabbing slightly to the side of where it should be. Yeah. And all of a sudden, those, those sensors are not looking where they should be looking again. They're looking yeah. in a different yeah. lane or a different direction. And I guess the question is going so, to be when a vehicle is, um, you know, se- severely damaged in a crash, how are you going to know whether or not they were calibrated correctly or not? That'd be a matter of getting the proof, I'd say, from the from the repairing um, workshop yeah. to ensure that. I mean, if I, if I sort of under a body shop or an accident repair centre, then I would make sure all this stuff was well documented. Yeah. Uh, Each vehicle that got sent out, uh, getting all these things documented um, and keeping a log. Yeah. In case any scenario like that did happen. Yeah. I mean, my mind's going into overdrive now, but, you know, somebody that is not keeping records and whether or not they're duty-bound to do so is, is a matter for another day, but somebody that's you know, shall we say, not repairing things properly, of, of which there are unfortunately some rogue traders out there in every different sort of trade that there is, and they'll always try and cut corners in the work that they do, you know, it, it could be potentially through gross negligence, you know, and somebody dies as a result of not doing those calibrations properly. They could also become part of an investigation as well as in regards to the part that they've played in making this vehicle unsafe when it's gone back it out. Could, yeah, but, um, yeah. Sure. I mean, it, it, as we say, it does sound almost it, it almost sounds far fetched at the moment, but yeah. it, it's not. It's a, it's reality, and and it's going to become more and more reality yeah. as as we do move uh, make these incremental changes towards autonomous driving. We're going to be yeah. using the same the same systems, the same sensors, maybe more of them, but we're still going to need this. Um, level of detail when yeah. it comes to the calibrations and okay. so it's it's not actually a far-fetched scenario to, no. to imagine no okay i just wanted to finish off really um and touch upon i was doing some other podcasts for um for this particular subject in a lot more detail but um just because we've got you here you know infotainment that is one of the you know main areas of a vehicle that we go for data in some of our investigations <laughs> and the problems that that can throw up for us as investigators of A, trying to get the data, but B, knowing what, you know, what system is fitted to a vehicle and its functionality, um, you know, is is difficult. Um, we kind of talked a little bit about before the Frankie Rig and the MIB2 now being superseded by, you know, the MIB3. But, you know, can you just give us an idea from a single manufacturer's perspective as to you know, roughly how many different infotainment modules could be fitted to that particular make of vehicles such as Audi? Well, I believe when um, 
back when I wrote that sort of entertainment guide, we were looking at about 15 different systems. Um, and that was maybe three years ago now. So I'd say we, we're racking up nearly nearly 20 different systems now. Um, and we're only talking from sort of mid-2000s to now. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not even... Oh, yeah, not even 15 years. So, um, but most of those different systems that we're, we're talking about have become uh, about in the past few years. Yeah. So it was actually quite slow. The change was quite slow back in the um, 2010s and things like that. And it's it's gathered more and more pace um, since since maybe 2015 onwards, actually. Certainly yeah. with the MIP systems. Um, because it's been designed as a scalable system, it does get updated quite a lot. Yeah. And there are different versions of it. Um, I'm just talking about the UK market as well. There are versions um, out there in the rest of the world, Yeah. Uh, lower-end versions generally, um, that we don't take in the UK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that infotainment list would be probably double. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, even for um, my sort of fellow technicians, um, it, it does take a lot of keeping up to, and it can be difficult for them sometimes to actually um, recognize one system from another and what the functionality of that system is. Yeah. So for law enforcement, um, I can imagine it's. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's enough. We were working in it day in, day out sometimes, and it's, it's hard enough to keep across. You know, one brand, let alone uh, multi brands, as you know, as we've got here in the UK and Europe. Um, yeah. The MIB three, then, which is obviously the latest um, system that's on there. How many different modules are there of the MIB three? So generally, in in the UK, we're taking sort of one version of it. Um, there's because the demand for entertainments uh, becomes so great uh, amongst consumers of vehicles these days it's it's like it's one of the most important things to them now isn't it it's yeah. not it's not about the engine and no uh this that and the other it's it's, it's about can i stream my music can i do this can i do that always already late to the entertainment system um so the good news is that the what's being offered to the customers is actually getting more streamlined now from from our brand so yeah. we're actually only offering on on most of the new products we're offering the uh, MIB three, and it's always like a, a high line unit. So right. um, its functionality is the same whether you're looking at um, sort of a, an A four or an A eight. It's um, it's about the same. Yeah. We do have a slightly different version on the A one, um, where we we have a version that doesn't have nav. Or it doesn't have the navigation enabled, right? So yeah. there, are, there are still similarities with the hardware, but the screen size has changed a little bit, and yeah. you know, so there's a few little things like that. And the other we big difference, get, of course, is touch screen. I guess, like you touched upon before. Yeah, we've gone to touch screen um, across across the range now, practically. Um, some of the higher up vehicles have, have two touch screens that run off the MIB system. Yeah. Um, what for the for the actual infotainment or for convenience? It's part convenience, part um, 
part infotainment, so it does a little bit of both, but right. it does run via the infotainment system. Yeah, well, we've seen that on um, certainly the Mercedes Mbook system, whereby there is um, you know two screens, one that can be just for nav, and there's elements on there that you can control convenience as well. Rolling yeah. to yeah. sort of you know multifunctional LCD screens now, I guess that you know physical buttons are still there, but there is the option to to use that as as everybody's becoming familiar with the LCD screen, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think the cars will probably all look very similar inside one day soon when yeah. they've all just yeah. got screens. They'll, they'll look like your uh, smartphone. They'll, they'll kind of look a bit the same. <laughs> and personalization then, profiles. I've got to ask you about profiles because we do see them on a lot of infotainment systems now, whereby we are um, asked to set a profile up within a vehicle for your particular settings or, um, you know, to give you access to, to your side of things and keep things private. Is that something that's on the MRB3 as well? It is, yes. Um, and that ties in quite a lot with the Audi Connect system as well. So um, you can set a profile uh, a little bit like, say, an iCloud profile. Yeah. If you were using Apple devices, you, you know, you pick your new phone up put your details in and it sort of sets itself up to just as your old phone was. Yeah. <laughs> We've sort of seen that with the with the yeah the MIB3 system you you can really just jump in another Audi, put your username and password in and it'll pull the data from the cloud of to how you like things, the preferences that you like and um, it'll just set the car up to to the just as those preferences are set really. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting from an investigation point of view because obviously that data has gone in the cloud. Um, yes. And it, you know, and it is somewhere, but you could, um, you know, that that could be then stored locally on different vehicles when it's pulling it down from the cloud. If you sort of using multiple Audi vehicles, I guess, or vehicles of yeah. a particular brand, because other manufacturers seem to be going down that route as well. Yeah, that's right. We we are seeing with the MIB three system, it's relying a lot more on what's going on with the cloud. Yeah. And, and more and more of the and is there some security around those, those personal accounts as well in the vehicle then have we got signs of a passcode that you might have to put in or the key for the vehicle has to be there yeah sure so it's, it's all passcode based um you can choose to sort of bypass the passcode um if you have got your phone connected through bluetooth it will automatically um, Bypass the password. Open that up for you yeah. so you don't have to have the inconvenience of typing the code in. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 I should imagine in years to come we might start seeing them um, sort of run iris scans and things like that. But yeah. At the moment it's it's based on the, the Bluetooth connection to the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then the phone is the phone being used as a key as well with that module? Yeah, so the that kind of it, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of uh, integrate into that module. The, that module's part of it in terms of setting the system up and things, but um, what we call the Audi Connect key um, still uses a lot of the other systems on the car to yeah. um, implement those features. So, yeah, it's uh, where you've got NFC um, built into the door handles. You can tap your phone on the door handle and get in the car that way. Then put your phone in the sort of center console and use the NFC pad in there to start the car as well. Yes, yeah, we start to see it obviously with other manufacturers too, but 
the, the MIB module definitely plays a part, but it's um, only a small part. It's not the sort of be all and end all of that system. It's there's a lot of different things in the vehicle that um, make that system work. Yeah, as a feature. Yeah. yeah. And then, as part of the infotainment and um, the information that the vehicle is is collecting, just talk to us a little about um, Car to X, where we're flushing data out to the fleet, perhaps to assist other drivers, and how that's working. Yeah, sure. Actually, I experienced that myself on my way my way back home tonight. Actually, um, where my vehicle I was driving told me um, there was a possibility of skidding. Um, so, yeah, heavy, it was the scenario was there was heavy rain um, going up a sort of dual carriageway on the way back home, and it may be that a, an Audi in front on the on the sort of path that I was uh, on has seen sort of an ABS intervention, and then what will happen is once that vehicle sees that ABS or stability program intervention, it'll push the message out to the cloud. Um, so this is what we call a car to x service, pushing it out to the cloud, and then the cloud um, will then push that message out to any Audis that are in that area um, or any vehicles that are participating on that same, um, same cloud, really. So yeah. we're going to see a lot more collaboration with manufacturers as well, other manufacturers. Um, so that we don't end up with things too fragmented where one manufacturer is running one version of a protocol and another one's running something else. It'd just be a little bit daft. But certainly in the future, we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing. Um, there's already been some trials in some cities in Germany where the cars are talking to the traffic lights. So they know when traffic lights are going to change. Uh, they can tell you on the dash like when it will change and adapt your speed accordingly so that by the time you get to the light, it has already changed to green so that it's from a fuel economy point of view. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a huge area, really. Um, yeah. I mean, and, infrastructure and, and infrastructure talking to the vehicle is obviously another another key area of, of potentially investigative data for, for an incident as well as to when the car receives some of the information from the infrastructure, if then it's subsequently involved in a crash at a junction, you know, when did it yeah. receive the information from the traffic lights, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's Yeah, and we're going to see, I mean, the 5G system is going to help a lot with this sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, as we move on to um, autonomous driving. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they do a lot of testing actually down at uh, Millbrook, and proving ground. Uh-huh. So we've got their own sort of test rig there for all set up around the circuit with 5G transmitters. Yeah. So for testing all this kind of technology. Yeah. Um, like you say, it's car to X, so they they left it quite open, really, haven't they, as to as to what the car could be talking to. And this is a, is a, an area that's going to grow significantly in the next yeah. few years. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, that just probably about wraps things up as what we wanted to talk about in this first episode around, you know, some vehicle technologies and just raising awareness as to what's on the modern vehicle. And I think it's clear, certainly from the conversations, you know, that we've had that we're, we're still in this transitional period and there's still a lot more to come. Um, but there is already, you know, a lot out there that um, 
investigators need to be aware of and be thinking about in their investigations, whether it be serious crime or serious collision investigations, or from the person who's having to repair a vehicle that somebody brings in. Um, it affects all, all kind of sectors, really, and it's been really useful for you to, to come on and explain some of those points, so we're grateful for you um, being on this inaugural Vehicle Network podcast, so thanks very yeah, much. Sure, it's been great being here. Privileged to be on the uh, first episode, yeah. Yeah, um, we'll, um, we'll get you back at some point in the future, I'm sure, to talk about um, electric vehicles um, and, yeah, you know, that, that's been left well alone in this because there's, there is yeah. too much to talk about um, in one episode. What a huge topic. Yeah. Um, but that, that also presents, um, you know, issues for investigators as well, so... If uh, if you are willing in uh, a few months' time, then we'll get you back on to talk about electric vehicles as well from uh, from your perspective. Yeah, be glad to. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, and um, thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Get networking with the Vehicle Network. <laughs>